from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Welcome to another special edition of The Cut Podcast. I'm very happy to be sitting here with Ronald Goldman, uh, and we're going to be having a conversation today about uh, some of the psychological aspects of infant male circumcision. And this is a field that I think, um, for many reasons, I've been a little wary to wade into. I think um, uh, when I talk to people who don't necessarily agree with me or my position on this subject... Um, you know, I, I find it much easier to talk about things like Meisner's corpuscles and, you know, the hard scientific type stuff that I can just sort of point to, you know, that we have hard data here. And my impression, and, you know, I'd, I'd love to get your, your reaction and your opinion about this, but my impression is that uh, when it comes to the psychological data, just uh, by virtue of um, where we are in our understanding of the human brain and the human mind, um, it's a little trickier to get hard data on these questions. Is that right, or is this a misperception? Well, I agree with you. Um, Part of the problem is uh, there's a resistance to doing these kinds of studies. Um, Most of the researchers uh, that do studies on circumcision are looking for benefits, not uh, potential harm. Uh, They happen to be medical doctors for the most part. So they're studying what they're familiar with, which is uh, the physical body. Um, studying behavior is a lot more complicated. Uh, you, you, you can't so much put it in a box and put it under a microscope or examine it that way. Um, so human behavior requires a different kind of research, and we haven't had the will to do that for the most part. If you can talk a little bit about your professional qualifications, your academic background, what, where, where are you coming from uh, from that perspective on this issue? Okay. I... Uh, I've studied psychology and I have a PhD uh, in psychology. Uh, I've written two books on circumcision. One is called Circumcision, the Hidden Trauma, How an American Cultural Practice Affects Infants and Ultimately Us All. My second book is called Questioning Circumcision, a Jewish Perspective. Uh, These books have been very well received by professionals in the field. Uh, The first book is endorsed by dozens of uh, professionals in mental health, uh, medicine, and social science. Um, the second book is endorsed by five rabbis, among others. Well, let's uh, k- kick off our conversation um, by having you uh, share with our audience how it is that you came to this subject in the first place. This is a, a taboo subject, and to a large extent, and so I'm always interested um, in learning how people first came to to thinking about this critically. So what was your story? Uh, In the 1980s, I attended a ritual Jewish circumcision uh, in a home uh, for a relative. And uh, I was reluctant to go. Um, I felt uncomfortable about attending this kind of uh, procedure. And uh, when I was there, I felt extremely uncomfortable during the circumcision. The infant cried, I would think, at the top of his lungs for over 20 minutes. Uh, I felt distressed. 
Uh, I wanted to get away. Uh, I noticed other people feeling very uncomfortable. Um, and um, the parents were crying. And was this the first bris you had ever attended, or was there something about this particular bris that made it um, memorable or traumatic or difficult for you? It was the first, and it was the last. Um, I vowed to myself I will never attend one of these because I felt like a silent accomplice to this uh, circumcision. And I didn't like that feeling, and I don't want to be a part of this. And like I say, as I learned more about it, uh, my feeling of wanting to, wanting to raise awareness about circumcision uh, became stronger, and uh, I will never attend another press. All right. So, and I, I'd like to come back to the Jewish side of your activism um, a little later, but mm -hmm. first I want to deal with some of the kind of what I see as the fundamental core issues related to uh, the psychological effects mm -hmm. of circumcision. And my, my first question is, um, is there any evidence that infant circumcision has psychological effects on the person being circumcised? And if so, what are these effects and where does this data come from? Okay, well, th there's, there's two answers there. One is the effects on the infant, and then there's the long-term effects on the adult. Um, the effects, there have been studies on behavioral changes in infants. I mean, we can't ask infants, you know, what are you feeling now? But they're pretty good at expressing themselves or withdrawing, as the case may be. So there have uh, been studies that show behavioral changes uh, for infants who have been circumcised as compared to infants who have not been circumcised. And those changes would include, for ex they go both ways. They go much more activity, uh, much more, the, the medical journals use the word irritability. I think that's a pseudonym for, hey, they're upset. <laughs> a little more than irritable, the way we use the term uh, in adult uh, behavior descriptions. Uh, I, and then there's also anecdotal um, evidence. Uh, for example, mothers, and I've talked to many mothers of circumcised infants, and uh, a lot of them report, for example, their infants were calm uh, and content before the circumcision, and after the circumcision, they, they would cry. And this sounds like, look, they, some of them would cry for hours every day for months. Uh, sometimes the infants become uh, quieter and withdrawn after the circumcision. And another behavioral change that was observed in the, in the studies was that infants became much more active uh, due to their upset as a result of being circumcised. So they might be crying a lot more. And sometimes mothers have reported to me that after the circumcision, the infants were crying for hours every day uh, for as long as several months before they finally uh, became a little you know, quieter and calmer. Uh, my interpretation of that, it took them that much time to work out the trauma of the circumcision experience. And again, that's, that's the response of some infants, but not necessarily all infants. Uh, there's also um, information uh, based on studies that show changes in mother-infant interaction after circumcision. The observed changes include uh, less eye contact from the infant with the mother, uh, and also difficulty in feeding. Um, so again, this is something that uh, has been observed comparing infants who are circumcised, infants who are not circumcised. Uh, and that affects the bond between the mother and child. Um, 
And I will also say that uh, in talking to mothers of circumcised boys, uh, some mothers are very distressed, uh, either from having witnessed the circumcision or learning about it later, or just dealing with the infant's behavior after the circumcision. Uh, this is something that's uh, very much overlooked. Uh, I'm not aware of any studies on this, but I hear about this a lot uh, from individual mothers. Uh, for example, they can become um, very uh, distressed about having to deal with a, a baby that's crying for hours at a time every day. Uh, their own uh, emotional state you know, can be affected. They, they can have doubts about, uh, are they doing the right thing to take care of their baby? Uh, this behavior is labeled colic by some pediatricians. Uh, and that uh, diagnosis uh, uh, includes a, a lot of uh, misunderstanding and a, a lack of how to treat it. it, it, it I mean, they're really guessing at what causes this kind of behavior. Uh, one other thing I think is important is that the, there was a, a significant study that showed changes in pain response of infants who were circumcised six months later uh, when they were vaccinated. They found that the circumcised infants had a stronger response to pain during vaccination than the infants that were not circumcised. And the investigators um, concluded that this was a sign of lasting neurological effects. Again, I'm talking six months later. And they uh, also uh, believed that this was a symptom of early trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, changes in behavior six months after the event. Can you talk a little bit more about this idea of the pain response? Because I see this in the literature, and I'm not entirely certain, and I don't know that our audience uh, is, is entirely clear on what does it mean? What does it mean that there's an increased pain response, and what are the consequences of that? Well, the, the pain response, again, to the vaccination uh, refers to the behavioral response of the infants when they're vaccinated. The circumcised infants cried longer and louder. So for, from the same stimulus they found a, a significant difference in the two groups, circumcised group, the group that was not circumcised. They, they actually measured the, the, the cry and how long they cried. And they found that you know, the difference between the two groups uh, suggested a, a relationship to the circumcision status. How does that work? Like what, what's, what mechanism well, does that play here? What, what, what the, the investigators were concluding is the original trauma, the circumcision uh, changed uh, the neurological status of the infant. In other words, it, it, it changed the, uh, the way pain gets uh, transmitted uh, and responded to. Uh, as a result, trauma is overwhelming. So the way uh, we deal with it is sometimes it's behavioral, withdrawal, uh, for example, and there's also a physical change that happens from the trauma, neurologically speaking. So that physical change uh, became permanent, or at least it lasted six months, so that because of the change in the neurological structure in the infant that was circumcised, they, respond, they were more sensitive to pain later on. Hmm. Um, moving on, um, and we touched on this a little bit, but if we can go a little more in depth into the psychological effects of this practice on the parents, um, and is there variability in that field at all? Well, there is variability, no question. I mean, some parents uh, simply want to believe that they did the right thing. 
Uh, and that's a defense against feeling the discomfort and, and emotional pain of recognizing that maybe they uh, made a mistake in judgment here based on either not enough information or misinformation. So there's the denial aspect uh, that it's okay, you know, we did what was best, uh, this has some kind of potential health benefit that they may believe uh, that, that have been reported in the literature. Uh, and then the other side of uh, the response is, re is regret. Uh, sometimes if, if this is a ritual that's observed, then the parents are actually seeing what's being done to the infant and how the infant responds. Uh, observing the infant's response can be very distressing, particularly for the mother. Uh, and once it starts, uh, I, I've talked to mothers who, were, who wanted to stop it and were just frozen, uh, couldn't respond uh, either by, by saying something or doing something. They, they were just frozen uh, and, and in, in some sort of shock from witnessing what was happening to their baby. Can we talk a little bit about the um, people who perform circumcisions and the ways in which um, they allow themselves to do this? One of the things that I've noticed, and you see in my film actually very clearly, Dr. Phyllis Marks, who's the Mohelet, um, who um, talks about circumcision at the beginning, and she says, you know, it's not the circumcision that causes the baby pain, it's the mucking. Um, and anything I can do to reduce the mucking helps. And then, of course, at the end of the film, you see she's doing the circumcision and the baby's completely calm until, you know, she starts the circumcision and then mm -hmm. the baby's screaming. Um, yeah. And what occurs to me uh, is that, and I think um, Dr. Paul Fleiss has talked about mm -hmm. this a little bit, mm -hmm. but, and, and this is remarkable, that the people performing the circumcisions may literally not hear the baby's crying. Can you address this? How does that happen? And, and um, what mechanisms are at play here? Uh, I've heard that also, and uh, that's part of the defense mechanisms or of practitioners uh, to protect them against the, the conflicting feelings and the recognition that they're causing harm. Um, so some of these feelings are so strong that they require uh, equivalent strength in the defense mechanism to protect, again, the individual from, from having these strong feelings. So for example, uh, denial can uh, prevent an individual from hearing what everyone else might hear, uh, seeing what everyone else might see, um, and recognizing what might be obvious, to, particularly to parents that this infant is in severe distress. Uh, and, um, and sometimes the, even the language they use, um, medical practitioners, uh, very common in the literature, they'll, they'll describe the infant's response uh, to the stress of circumcision, uh, very unlikely to use the word trauma. Uh, so the, the language tends to minimize the, the effect of, of this practice on the infant. And um, yeah, I've spoken to doctors who tell me about um, when they're in medical school and very often they do their first circumcision. And you know, th there's a lot of uh, pressure on them to comply with, with this training and do what they're being told to do. So uh, 
where they may have an impulse or an instinct to not want to do a circumcision and they're required to do this for the most part, uh, they have to protect themselves psychologically so that they can follow through with what's being asked of them. So that protection uh, gets, gets to be sort of habitual uh, in the way they recognize what they're doing and, and, and what's happening as a result of that. And the other thing is, is they want to do the best circumcision they can. This is a very delicate procedure, of course. So their attention is focused on doing the procedure. Their attention is ignoring what the baby is experiencing. Um, so with that focused attention, uh, they're less likely to recognize what's going on. And uh, I spoke to one doctor uh, who did not recognize the infant's response. And then he watched someone else do a circumcision. And he was horrified at what he was seeing with the infant's uh, vocal response, behavioral response, uh, obviously in, in agony. Uh, and he d decided he would not do any more circumcisions and he would not have his own son circumcised. So it, it, these are very powerful psychological mechanisms that protect people from recognizing what's going on. And I think also one of the things that I've seen, um, and I, I often say that this is the most bizarre, one of the most bizarre parts of this whole sordid tale to me, is um, this belief that took root in the medical community, and I think to a large extent still some doctors honestly believe this, that babies don't feel pain. This, this myth um, that, that anyone um, uh, in possession of senses could very easily disprove by just observing a baby being circumcised mm -hmm. is actually mm -hmm. deeply believed. And then the, the sort of corollary to this is that if you give them a little um, sugar-infused water, that somehow they wouldn't, that that would have some kind of anesthetic effect. Um, and these beliefs seem to me to be without any foundation, either in just direct experience or, or even at this point in the scientific literature. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's, that's less common now than it used to be, but it's still out there. And that's another indicator of the defense mechanism to uh, prevent individuals that believe this from recognizing what's really happening. Uh, so what happens with the defense is that people will adapt, adopt beliefs to support their defense that the, or belief that the baby doesn't feel any pain. So, uh, and, and uh, this got addressed uh, directly back in 1987 uh, when uh, some parents were discovering that major surgery was being done on their young infants without any pain medication. And they complained to the medical profession about this. And as a result of a series of complaints about this, uh, a couple of uh, investigators d decided to go through the literature on newborn infant pain and uh, write a review article that got published in the New England uh, Journal of Medicine in which they concluded uh, quite clearly that newborn infants, not only do they feel pain, but they feel it at least as much as adults and probably more so. Uh, and lots of, lots of data and research to back up that conclusion. So, but then that's, that's a huge shift from what was common belief and practice for, for decades preceding that. So some doctors who have been doing circumcisions for decades 
uh, had a difficult time accepting that. So again, with where the denial comes in, either they would not believe that result um, or have a little difficulty uh, in uh, adapting you know, their own belief to that. So for a long time, circumcisions continued to be done without pain medication. Uh, and then at the same, back in the, in the 90s, there was more research on, well, what's the best form of uh, pain medication to give an infant? And one of the uh, options they were testing was uh, sugar water, uh, pacifier. Uh, sure, if you had put a pacifier in a baby's mouth, it's a lot more difficult to cry. So that would change behavioral response. Well, again, you know, some of the researchers have a bias going into their research. They're looking for a particular result. Uh, this is a great problem on this topic. So um, there were results. Uh, what they concluded in, in, in a lot of this research was that uh, injecting pain medication into two spots on the penile shaft was the most effective way of reducing the pain experienced by the infant, but it did not eliminate the pain. And occasionally it was not effective at all, either because of the way the practitioner uh, did the injections or some other factor. So there's no guarantee that any pain medication today will eliminate the pain uh, of an infant during circumcision. Right. And of course, there's the, in addition to the pain of the actual procedure itself, once that anesthetic is worn off, mm -hmm. there's pain for the at least a week after, my That's understanding true. is. That's true. It takes that much time to heal. The anesthetic wears off after hours. Yeah. Um, if we could move on to talking about um, some of the mechanisms that the psychological mechanisms involved in preventing men from dealing with this issue, I think. So now moving on to sort of, you know, let let's actually talk about the um, long term effects because we've been focusing on the the sort of infant psychological effect, the, the psychological effects on the infant, mm -hmm. but. Um, are there any psychological consequences that extend beyond infancy or beyond childhood even? Um, and what evidence do we have of this? Well, again, there's little research on this. Uh, to do this kind of research requires a will and resources. Um, we're in short supply both uh, in mainstream medicine and psychology, for example. Um, there was just a study that was published uh, in the International um, Journal of Men's Studies. And the investigators uh, conducted a survey of 300 men who were self-selected, uh, something that was posted on a couple of websites, inviting men to take the survey. And they found there were 300 men involved, and they found that the circumcised men uh, after taking this, uh, performing the, this questionnaire, answering a series of questions on, on their feelings, they found a significant difference between the circumcised group and the group that was not circumcised. They found that the circumcised men had greater difficulty identifying their feelings and expressing their feelings. Uh, and this is consistent with uh, what I wrote about uh, in my book, Circumcision, the Hidden Trauma, and particularly in the chapter uh, on post-traumatic stress disorder and long-term psychological effects. A common 
long-term uh, effect of trauma uh, is reduced emotional expression. Uh, this is a way um, individuals can defend against the pain of the earlier trauma. They become less responsive emotionally. Uh, if they're more sensitive emotionally, then they're more likely to connect with feelings that, are, that go back to the early trauma. That's extremely painful, so they, it's a defense. And uh, the defense is psychological and it's physical. And the tension of repressing these feelings gets stored in the body and affects personality. Uh, so in a way, with circumcision being so common here in the United States, um, some behavioral traits of men, like having difficulty expressing feelings, become uh, assumed to be normal male behavior. Uh, when uh, here, or at least we have a preliminary study uh, that shows that there's some connection between uh, a lack of emotional expression and having been circumcised. Um, mention other feelings um, that men have expressed uh, who are dissatisfied being circumcised uh, include anger, shame, grief, distrust. Those are many of the feelings, some of the feelings that are very common in men who are dissatisfied being circumcised. So how do they become dissatisfied and other men are not dissatisfied? Exactly. That's the significant question. Well, um, that's, it's an in, based on individual experience. For example, great anecdotes here. Uh, I talk to men and they say, you know, when I was four years old, I was playing with a, a friend of mine, a peer, uh, and we were examining e the genitals of each other, and I saw that he had uh, the skin over his penis, and I didn't. And uh, I've been upset about that ever since for the rest of my life, you know, because, uh, because uh, you know, later on, or later on I asked about it, and uh, I found out that this was cut, cut off of me. And I could never understand that, you know, men would, men would say. Uh, and so they, they feel when they're aware that they're missing something, they, they feel inadequate, uh, and this can be part of the shame, and uh, uh, can, can affect their self-esteem. Uh, for another man, it might, it might have been an incident when he was in the showers in junior high school, and would look around and see uh, boys who had foreskins and penises looked different than his, and very often uh, boys don't talk about this, uh, it's uncomfortable for them. Uh, maybe they don't want to hear what the answer is going to be. Uh, no one has ever talked to them about it. So they, they uh, adapt to the, the silence that goes on around them in the culture, which is this is something that people don't talk about, circumcision, penises. Um, so they're left with not knowing and understanding why am I missing this piece of skin on the end of my penis. So uh, there's a silent denial going on here. Um, and then other men uh, maybe don't have such experiences or ignore it or again they have to come up with their own ideas and beliefs about how do I explain the you know if they see somebody with foreskin they may eh, they got a, a kid's got a strange looking penis there must be something wrong with him I'm okay and so they they grow up uh, and then under, under if they see that whatever, three-quarters of the boys are circumcised, they think, well, you know, it's those few guys that aren't circumcised that have the problem. 
Uh, so, you know, boys and, and young men come up with different um, beliefs to explain, you know, some kind of experience. It either uh, helps to protect them from feeling the discomfort or triggers the discomfort that never goes away. In our culture, which is a lar largely circumcising culture, um, I think a lot of people listening to this, and I, I encounter this on a regular basis, there's a sort of, you look at someone who complains about their circumcision as if there's something wrong with them. Because it's a, such a, a pervasive practice, mm -hmm. and because there are so few people who speak out about this, I think there's mm -hmm. a sense that there's something psychologically wrong with the people who do speak out about it. So can you address that yeah. sort of perspective a little bit? That's true, and that's, that's the way the majority uh, defends its, its own belief that circumcision is okay. Uh, if somebody's going to threaten that belief, uh, someone who's believed that deeply for, for decades is going to defend that belief. So that's where the conflict comes in. It's, it's going to be painful for someone who believes in circumcision to question his or her own belief in circumcision. Because if that's questioned, then if it's a man, he may be questioning his own circumcision status, which is likely to be painful if he hasn't questioned it before. Because for a man to recognize that he's missing a part of his penis is very significant. Uh, it's, it's a realization that can, can completely change his feeling about himself and his sexuality. And what man wants that disturbance psychologically? So rather than have to deal with that, most men will just deny and defend, and some women too, uh, try to uh, uh, support the status quo, uh, the majority. There's also the, uh, the factor of conformity here and being like what you see around you. Uh, people are much more comfortable uh, conforming to their culture and what they observe to be normal, uh, a regular part of their experience. And people are less comfortable questioning what they observe to be normal um, behavior and appearance. So uh, there's going to be uh, understandable some defenses here to protect, you know, again, the status quo, the cultural belief, the cultural bias that circumcision is okay. I think also there's a spectrum of response among men when they're exposed to information about circumcision mm -hmm. that, that, that sort of, you know, goes all the way from complete denial mm -hmm. to apathy mm -hmm. to um, feeling that, they'd been, that they've been harmed. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess, uh, I don't know how, how one would answer this question, but w what is it that... Is, are there personality types that come into play here um, that certain personality types are more prone to apathy and certain personality types are more prone to denial and certain personality types are more prone to feel the trauma uh, mm -hmm. that was done to them? And um, how does that play out? And then also the people who do really feel harmed by this, what mm -hmm. do you think characterizes them as a group? Is there anything that sort of connects them as a group? Okay. Well, well, yeah, I think what's going on here, here are individual differences um, in lots of psychological aspects. Uh, some people are more open to feelings as you know, uh, a result of an earlier study I referred to. Uh, some, some people have difficulty with feelings, some people are, are more open to them. So uh, if people are uh, more strongly defended, um, less emotional expression, uh, 
suffering from more or stronger symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of their circumcision, they're more likely to either be apathetic or, or just to simply deny this information and say, well, look, we get all these medical studies that say it's wonderful. You know? um, so I agree there's the spectrum. Uh, depending on personal experience, uh, if this person had an incident when he was a kid, for example, that, that would affect uh, a later experience. Or it either might confirm the feeling that the man had as a kid uh, or be in conflict with what he assumed to be true and he would, would still uh, you know, deny the uh, uh, evidence to the contrary of his existing belief. You know, some younger men in their 20s and 30s who were circumcised and will say, look, look, if I felt any more pleasure, I couldn't stand it. I've heard that. Um, uh, which reminds me that uh, circumcision uh, may be associated with a limited ability to feel, as we talked about before. Uh, now, feeling uh, is not just limited to quote-unquote bad feelings. Feeling is also good feelings. So if you have a limited capacity for feeling, uh, that could be associated with a limited capacity for feeling sexual pleasure. So if your capacity to feel sexual pleasure is limited, less than what it might otherwise be if you weren't circumcised, when you reach that limit, you're feeling as much as you can stand because the limit's lower. But if the limit were higher and you had your foreskin, you could feel more pleasure. If we could circle back to talking about, so you mentioned the alexithymia study that, that recently mm -hmm. came out. Um, what other kinds of evidence do we have of uh, the, the long-term psychological consequences of circumcision? What kind of data exists? Uh, I understand that there's not much, but what is the data that does exist? And um, I know that you have uh, famously gone on record as suggesting that there may be um, severe social consequences to circumcision. So can you address that also? Mm -hmm. Well, again, uh, there are not a lot of data about um, psychological effects. Uh, all we can do is survey men. Actually, there was a survey published in uh, British Journal of Neurology in 1999. Um, a colleague uh, interviewed, I think it was over 500 men, or they, they filed reports, a harm survey, if you will. Uh, and uh, the results of that survey showed, you know, some of the feelings I referred to earlier, the, uh, the shame, uh, grief, anger, distrust, um, sexual anxieties, um, low self-esteem, avoidance of intimacy, and for some men, depression. So we don't know uh, how these um, uh, symptoms would show up if we had done, for example, a, a random sample national study. Uh, I seriously doubt if that will ever get done um, because of the will and the resources to do something like that. It would cost a lot of money. Uh, however, uh, I would say it's significant. Uh, here we have hundreds of men, uh, understandably self-selected, but we're still, we have the reports of hundreds of men who are reporting uh, some serious psychological difficulties that they connect with the circumcision. Oh, let me mention one other thing. There's, uh, there's clinical evidence. Uh, there are um, ways of um, 
psychotherapy uh, being conducted that are outside the mainstream uh, that get into you know some some very interesting um, approaches to um, early experience and uh, there are practitioners out there that uh, can support their clients in actually reliving early experience uh, this is controversial no question about it uh, but again it's a situation where the mainstream uh, conventional wisdom, so to speak, wants to believe that only certain things are possible psychologically. And anything outside of that uh, is viewed with great skepticism without any open-mindedness to, you know, well, let's find out what's going on here. Uh, but <clears throat> some of these practitioners have, uh, they videotaped uh, their sessions with some of these clients. Uh, for example, okay, here's uh, some of these clients have relived birth. Uh, and then when the session's over, they'll have a conversation with the uh, clinician and will say, well, you know, there were, uh, uh, my, the cord was strangling me, for example. Now, you know, an adult walking around wouldn't remember that. We, most of us don't remember much before four or five. So then uh, he checks with the uh, obstetrician's records, and there it is. Uh, the cord was wrapped around the baby's neck. So, and there's, there's many examples of that correlation between what's reported in the clinical session and checking with the medical uh, report of the birth decades earlier. So, it's pretty strong evidence that this is reliable. And if you observe what goes on with a client reliving birth, I mean, nobody can act that out. <laughs> I mean, the cry sounds like a baby, the movements look like a baby. I mean, obstetricians have observed these sessions and they say, that's like what, how the babies are, seeing an adult relive this experience. So if, if all these people, and this is worldwide, that these kinds of uh, sessions have been uh, experienced by clinicians and clients, if it's possible to relive your birth, circumcision happens after that. So uh, it certainly supports the idea that circumcisions can be remembered. And how they're remembered is in the body, not in the conscious mind. This becomes repressed memory. And there have been uh, sessions of clients who have relived their circumcision. And this isn't something that they go into a session and say, well, I think I'll work on my circumcision today. It happens spontaneously because the body is ready to experience it. Uh, it's not going to happen in your first session, uh, but it, it can happen when uh, this happens to come up. Uh, when you this is a body-oriented psychotherapy, it, it's, it's geared toward focusing on what is the, what is the body saying? Uh, what sounds are coming out of your mouth? Uh, are you breathing? Are you moving? Uh, and uh, these kinds of sessions are very powerful and have uh, resulted in significant changes for people after they've uh, relieved these experiences, uh, expressed the uh, uh, repressed feelings that they've been carrying around for most of their lives. Uh, and it can be very effective for some people. So this comes from the Freudian idea that uh, making the subconscious conscious has a healing and salutary effect on the individual. Is that right? Well, it's connected, and, and at the same time, it's, it's, it, it's not a talk. It's not a cognitive approach. It's a body approach. So we're, uh, Freudian ther therapy is, is very much uh, a conversation with a therapist. Uh, this is not a conversation. It's... It's, it's an experienced person supporting the client in letting the body express itself. 
And that, again, that can be vocally. It usually is vocal, but it's, it's also movement. Uh, and sometimes, for example, in reliving the birth, uh, the practitioner may set up, you know, with pillows or some such thing, actually recreating a, a pseudo birth canal for the client to uh, work him or herself through uh, as the client is reliving the birth. I guess I'm trying to understand why someone would want to relive their circumcision. Well, why do you see any mental health practitioner? You're having some difficulties uh, psychologically or behaviorally that you, you want to get some help with. Uh, and you happen to trust this form of other people. This would be the last thing they'd want to do yeah, uh, but if, I, I, if they're dealing with their psychological issues. I guess I'm trying to understand the theory yeah. of how it helps. How, how would it, you know, if I've gone through a trauma, yeah. in what way does reliving the trauma help me overcome the effects of that trauma? Well, the, there's a physical change because the, the trauma is repressed with body armor, body um, tension, holding back these feelings. So the way the, uh, the body-oriented therapy works is it weakens the defenses against the feelings that are held back. So when the feelings are released, you release the tension. Um, you, in some sense, can accept yourself more uh, that, hey, it, it, it's not an accident that I happen to be scared of whatever it is I'm scared of. Uh, this, this was connected with something that happened to me when I was two years old. Uh, and now I've released that fear, so I'm not walking around with that fear anymore, and I'm more open to my present experience because because I'm not being affected by my past. I mean, it's it's physically and emotionally resolved at the same time. Yeah, so almost a catharsis. Yeah, right. That's very interesting. So not only are you a psychologist, uh, Ronald, you're also Jewish. That's correct. <laughs> Which puts you in very rare company in terms of people who are opposed to circumcision. I know there are some uh, vocal Jews out there, myself included, uh, who are against this practice, mm -hmm. but it's not, um, I mean, it's not the norm in yeah, our in sure. our ethnic or religious community. Right. And that, that poses a whole host of unique challenges. Mm -hmm. um, so how have you um, navigated those challenges? And um, do you see a contradiction between your views on circumcision and your uh, cultural, religious, and ethnic heritage? Um, well, it, it depends how I would define the contradiction. C certainly, I'm, I'm advocating uh, something that is in conflict with what the Torah says. Uh, but I don't accept everything the Torah says. Uh, and that view of the Torah is consistent with the great majority of Jews, by the way. Uh, generally speaking, it's mainly the Orthodox community that accepts everything the Torah says as the literal word of God. So there's a distinction there. Um, so I don't, uh, I don't approach Jews who are uh, doing this for strictly religious reasons in terms of God says we're, God commanded this. Uh, it's very clear to me that's a belief. Okay, but those that have that belief don't view it as a belief. They, they, they think it's true. It's, it's truth for them. And I accept that. And there are many Jews out there for which that's not their truth. So other things being equal, 
they're more likely to be open-minded to hearing uh, new information, for example. So um, Circumcision Resource Center has a, a section called the Jewish Circumcision Resource Center, which seeks to raise awareness among Jews about the practice of circumcision. And uh, as I uh, said earlier, there are some rabbis who are questioned or are opposed to circumcision. So uh, it's not necessarily a function of how, um, how observant one is. Uh, one can be observant and still question circumcision. Not the norm, but by a long shot. Um, uh, but then, again, in this country, a very high proportion of Jews are secular. And circumcision may be the only thing they do that's connected with their Jewish identity. Uh, and to me, that gets back to, well, it's... It's a, it's a trauma. And another very important uh, article in the psychological literature is about the compulsion to repeat trauma. And um, what the investigator found was that uh, when trauma is experienced, particularly in childhood, uh, it increases the likelihood that when that child grows up to be an adult, he or she will is more likely not necessarily, but more likely to inflict that same trauma on his or her children. That hence the very popular, you know, wanting Junior to look like Daddy. Yeah, yeah. Again, that's the, that's the belief that someone would use to defend or excuse. Let's circumcise the kid. Uh, but underlying that, beyond awareness, would be a compulsion to repeat the trauma that was done to the father. So uh, where the father, uh, and there have been surveys on this in the medical literature, the father is the one who more likely wants the circumcision of the son if he's circumcised. Um, and um, so he's, he's the one that wants to pass on you know, the compulsion. Uh, his, his trauma is not going to be my son's trauma, but he sees, again, we have to rationalize these behaviors to make sense to us as adults. So whereas the psychology is below the surface and below awareness, uh, what is in awareness is the cultural belief system. So the cultural belief is it's cleaner, it has medical benefits, uh, he won't get teased, he'll look like his father, on and on and on. I mean, <laughs> there's a website out there that's got hundreds of these beliefs and excuses that have been used over the decades to justify or defend circumcision in this country. I mean, I mean for some of them can be quite humorous. Uh, and uh, stretch the imagination. Uh, but hey, when adults make decisions, they have to believe something about, why am I doing this? If they don't know the underlying psychological motivation, they'll come up with a belief to defend it. What are some of the unique psychological challenges that a Jew might face in resisting this central practice? Well, certainly a lack of uh, social support in the Jewish community. And uh, that's that can be difficult uh, to, to deal with. Uh, by that I mean, uh, say you're, you're Jewish and uh, you're expecting a baby boy and um, you're talking about not having him circumcised. You know, if you start talking to grandparents and cousins or whoever, uh, they're very likely to be dismayed at, at it, that you would even be thinking that. Um, so, uh, making a decision not to circumcise is, 
is done for the reasons that the parents sincerely believe is best for the child. Um, and there's people have different psychological influences about what guides their behavior. And as, as I said before, conformity is a very strong influence for a lot of people, probably the majority. Of, yeah, actually, there's a study that uh, they tested. Um, they had a, a visual, an illustration in this study. Um, and they had a, a person come into a room and there were like four other people that described what the illustration looked like. And this, this newcomer, the test subject, walks into the room, uh, listens to these four people say, this is what I see. And, and clearly that's not what's there. <laughs> so the test subject looks, looks at what's there and three quarters of the people agreed with what the, the uh, other people, you know, who were accomplices to the, to the study, reported that they saw, even though it wasn't true. So three quarters of the people agreed with the majority of the people that were looking at this illustration. So, I mean, there's scientific uh, evidence that shows that people will deny what they see in order to be accepted and uh, to conform with what other people say and do. So that's a lot of what's going on here. I think also um, on that same line, and, you know, this is obviously a much more radical um, uh, sort of side, but... I I've been thinking a lot about the Stanley Milgram hmm. experiments yeah, yeah. lately in trying to because uh you know a lot of people who are against circumcision um or naturally there's some people who just naturally get this right away mm -hmm. and they don't mm -hmm. understand how it is that people mm -hmm. could do this to another human being. Yeah. Um and these are the, so for that reason I've been having a lot of those discussions with people who say well how how is it that this goes on? How is it that, you know, especially if you, you meet an individual from a, a culture that doesn't circumcise and they mm. come here and they learn this. We just yeah, had yeah. an experience last night with someone who's from another right. country and was completely yeah. unaware yeah, that yeah. this was the norm here. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, you know, sort of stra strains credulity, boggles the mind. But um, I, I've been sort of referring people to the Stanley Milgram mm -hmm. experiments mm -hmm. to understand that given the right environment, given the right conditions, human beings are capable of horrible, horrible yeah. things. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you think that that applies? Do you think that's a fair, do, do you think it's too extreme to bring those, those experiments up? Or? Sure, and you know, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's an experiment about uh, following the direction of, a, of an authority. Uh, the experiment involves uh, subjects being told to uh, inflict a certain degree of pain on some others, um, and so they're they're fi finding out you know who agrees with the direction of the uh, of the people leading the study and and who decides not to follow the uh, instruction of you're pressing a button and somebody else is observed to be screaming in pain, uh, and so most of the people in the experiment uh, complied with the instruction to uh, inflict the pain. Um, so it, it, to me, it gets back to how we perceive authority in this, in this culture. And uh, most of us accept what authority has to say without question. And so the key thing here is without question. Uh, independent thinking is not uh, a strong component of our culture. Now, we don't raise children to be independent thinkers, most of us. Uh, you know, they're pretty much raised to be like everybody else and think like everybody else. And it's, 
It's the minority of people that question uh, cultural beliefs and practices. So, um, in the Jewish community, for example, where you have whatever it is, 90 plus percent uh, circumcising, um, it's very difficult to um, put yourself at odds with that. Um, and yet, and this yeah. is um, largely where I'm standing yeah. firmly in the Jewish tradition, it's a very strong Jewish value to question mm -hmm. and to challenge authority. Yeah. Um, and so for me, that's the Jewish value that trumps circumcision. Sure, yeah. And I think it's an authentic Jewish um, move to question circumcision mm -hmm. for that reason. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's not unusual for a culture or a group to have conflicting values. <laughs> and then they pick the value that fits the situation at the time. Uh, that's what being human is, uh, you know, uh, very common behavior, you know, whatever fits, fits the situation. So it, 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 it's the minority that will, qu that will point out, well, wait a minute, you know, and just what you just said. So, uh, uh, and as that the size of the minority increases, that helps the folks that are uh, dependent on conformity helps helps them see. Well, it's not just this one person. It's you know, hey, I'm I'm seeing this all over the internet now. I'm seeing it in videos, you know, in articles, and on the front page of you know some of these publications uh, on the internet. So p people get a little more comfortable with the idea of questioning circumcision the more they see it out there, and so that's why we're continuing to put it out there. Uh, in different ways and, and uh, trying to reach different audiences and just plant the seeds all around so the next time they see it won't be the first time. Arnold Goldman, thank you so much. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. Um, where can people learn more about your work? Uh, where can they go online? Or Sure. Uh, visit our website, uh, website of Circumcision Resource Center at circumcision.org and the companion website for the Jewish community is jewishcircumcision.org. And thank you very much. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com.